Back in the mid-90s, I remember the day my uncle handed me a neatly clipped article from Newsday, a popular Long Island, New York newspaper. The article's title, Gene Therapy to Cure Hemophilia by 1999. As a kid with not only severe hemophilia, but a nasty high Bethesda inhibitor to boot, that clipping seared itself into my brain. Was I really only a few years away from having all this pain, disability, sadness, and hardship lifted away and removed from my life like some type of hot air balloon from heaven sent to relieve me of all of my greatest suffering? Of course, that did not happen. The gene therapy clinical trial programs of the 90s, most of which centered around adenoviruses as the vectors responsible for transferring the gene, as opposed to today's highly studied adeno-associated viruses, well, those programs of the 90s failed leaving me and many, many others disappointed and waiting. Since then, we've tempered our expectations some. The community has generally moved away from that ever-so-charged and rather problematic C-word, cure, which is sometimes softened to the adjective curative in order to describe the great benefit of a proposed therapy without fully committing to its ability to eradicate disease. Then on Tuesday, November 22nd, 2022, it happened. For the first time in U.S. history, a gene therapeutic for hemophilia, specifically for hemophilia B, called hemogenics, was approved by the FDA. This was only three months after the first gene therapeutic for hemophilia A, called Roctavian, was conditionally approved in Europe. A decision by the FDA here in the United States is expected early next year. So what does this mean? Is gene therapy now the standard of care? How will gene therapy be adopted by patients, even if currently biotechnology does not offer the cure that was for so long promised? Will that framing negatively impact the way doctors and patients consider this treatment option in the process of shared decision-making? Will insurance companies be willing to pay for what CBS News referred to as, quote, the most expensive drug ever, quote, following the FDA's approval? Gene therapy is here. Kinda. 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 With a drug to treat hemophilia B, anyway, now approved in the U.S., and one to treat hemophilia A conditionally approved in Europe, and likely soon in the U.S. So all that's left to do now is to figure out what in the heck all this means. Amy and I will discuss what is sure to be an ongoing topic as we head into 2023. Thank you for joining us, and welcome to Bloodstream. You are listening to The Bloodstream Podcast, a show serving the greater bleeding disorders community brought to you by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. I'm your patient advocate and host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am your healthcare advocate, nonprofit nerd, and human with a cold. Human with a cold. Amy Board, reminding you to please speak with a healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions unless you have a cold, which they just want you to just figure it out. On today's show, gene therapy is here. Kinda, Kinda. sorta, you know. And there's a new era of treatment options that has begun. Amy and I will share our first reactions to the recent hemogenics approval news and share our opinions of how this news may impact our community in 2023. Michelle Rice, the longtime policy and pair relations nerd. Can I call her a nerd? Is that a oh fair my gosh? Thing? Michelle Rice is the public policy nerd who made me a public policy nerd. So for sure, 
Well, she's also a friend, and she's here today to talk with us. She's formerly of the National Hemophilia Foundation. She's a patient. She's a caregiver. And she's going to tell us about her time at the foundation, what led to her stepping away, and what she's doing right now in this new phase of her life and career. Which is fantastic and is a tremendous full circle to what we're talking about with gene therapy as her work still involves access to care. So we're excited to talk to Michelle. And we'll close the episode with the latest installment of The Well, in which Jessica Lauren Richmond will this time focus on relationships. <laughs> We've got all that and more on today's show, the penultimate of 2022. Penultimate. That's a, that's a phenomenal word. There's a lot of letters in it. There's a U. There's a T. There's there an is, M. It's a lot. But it's also, as dedicated TV watchers know, the penultimate one is where it all goes down, not the finale. That's all the Game of Thrones. 100% every single time. For Pro sure. tip Bordeaux. Listeners, as always, thank you for joining Patrick and I here on Bloodstream. If you haven't already, hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast and follow Bloodstream Media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for updates on new episode releases. Listeners, I also want to remind you that the Bloodstream podcast is made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Yes, that's right, Takeda. Takeda's got this website, bleedingdisorders.com, where you can learn all about Takeda's resources for and commitment to the Bleeding Disorders community. Amy, Takeda believes in a world free of bleeds. I know, I do too. And Takeda is dedicated more than ever in their efforts to offer a wide range of programs and support to help patients throughout their treatment journey, wherever on that journey they may be. Did you know that too? I did, I did. Yeah. You can learn more by simply visiting (laughs) bleedingdisorders.com. One more time, that's bleedingdisorders.com. And for their founding and ongoing support of the Bloodstream Podcast, I would just like to say... Thanks, Takeda. Thank you, Takeda. Amy Board, we got a lot to get to. Oh my gosh, this thing is stacked today. But you know how at the end of the rundown, I always note all that and more on the episode. Yes. I like that and more part always. You do. You love the and more. There is always more. Mm -hmm. And today I'd like to start with the and more by featuring this announcement from Bloodstream's James Maple about a new segment he's spearheading in 2023. Check it out. Hello everyone, Bloodstream Correspondent and your new best friend James here to introduce a new segment to the Bloodstream Podcast. Are you or perhaps someone you know within the Bleeding Disorders community a musician? If so, we would love to spotlight your work on an episode of Bloodstream. To submit, send a link of your music to mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. Now be sure to include a few sentences about the track, why the song is important to you, a bit about the artist, and how to contact them. Now as a music fanatic myself, I am particularly excited for this new segment. Patrick, Amy, and I know there are tons of creative musicians within the community. Spotlighting their work only brings us closer together. We are so looking forward to hearing all your submissions and cannot wait to share with our audiences. James is going to be everyone's best friend, and this segment is going to rule. (laughs) It really is. So there you go. Mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. Share your track, share your song, share the story, and we will be featuring those on 2023 episodes of the Bloodstream podcast. Let's get to it. All right. So we did the end more. Now we can get to what we actually talked about. So. Gene therapy is here, at least sort of, kind of. On November 22nd, the FDA did approve Hemogenics. It's an adeno-associated viral vector gene therapy that has now been indicated for the treatment of adults with hemophilia B. This has been anticipated for quite some time. It's worth noting that Dr. Stephen Pipe is one of the investigators on the trial of this drug, and we have reached out to him to bring him on the show to talk with us more about what this means from a medical and scientific point of view. Hopefully, we'll be able 
able to bring you that in January. But for the moment, Amy and I just want to kind of respond to what this letter on November 22nd from the FDA approving hemogenics, what this letter kind of means. What is this moment in time? So Amy, let me turn over to you first. From your opinion, what is this moment in time? What have we just entered into? Well, I, I, I mean, I, I think we've entered into a lot more of unknowns, to be completely honest. I do think it is, it's, it's been interesting hearing from just some pals talking in the community about now all of a sudden it's an option. So they're taking it a little bit more seriously. So sure. I think the process is going to continue to evolve. I think there are some HTCs that are prepared to have this be an option, and there are some that are not. And so I think um, staying connected to the work nationally with what NHF is doing is you know, important, what MASAC is doing in order to provide guidelines for gene therapy. I would assume we should get some guidelines from MASAC about gene therapy, shared decision-making. Obviously, that that has already been out there in the world, but a lot of unknowns I have no idea how anybody's going to pay for it. It's just, you know, it's, it's going to be really interesting. The payment piece is interesting. As I mentioned in the cold open, the CBS News headline of their article about Hemogenics' approval highlighted that the $3.5 million price tag on it would make it the world's most expensive drug. I'm looking now, too, at headlines from Bloomberg News, world's most expensive drug, CSL Hemogenics hemophilia approved by FDA. Let's see. There's more from CNN. FDA approves $3.5 million treatment for hemophilia, now the most expensive drug in the world. So those are going to be the headlines. We're going to hear about how expensive it is. I also saw something in Wired that Dr. Pipe was quoted in that did talk about the curative nature of these therapies within the first couple few sentences. And, you know, I may actually hold Dr. Pipe's feet to the fire on that a little bit because I think that's just a word we need to be so, 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 so careful of. And I also want to remind those who have been listening, there's a big difference between the current state of AAV, adeno-associated viral gene therapeutics for hemophilia B versus hemophilia A. So we also talked about Roctavian Biomarinth product, which has been conditionally approved in Europe and is expected to receive its decision, I think likely an approval, I think we'll see, by the FDA later in 2023. These are very different products. Hemophilia A and hemophilia B mean you're missing different proteins. So while they are interdependent and work within the coagulation cascade, they are very different. So it is important for the community to appreciate that what this drug for hemophilia B, this gene therapeutic for hemophilia B offers, is different than what the drug for hemophilia A offers. Some of the unanswered questions around long-term safety, efficacy, durability, the data that we have for hemophilia B is much different than the data that we have for hemophilia A. Shared decision-making. This is something Amy brought up a bit earlier and is a term that's been popularized within the community for the last 12, 18 months or so. Dr. Len Valentino, the president and CEO of the National Hemophilia Foundation, who's going to join us here on Bloodstream for the final episode of the year coming out on the 23rd. This is a very big point for him, shared decision-making. And as someone who ran a hemophilia treatment center for over 20 years, I think he knows what he's talking about. And the concept is that the patient and the doctor together discussing what the patient's goals are, what the most recent therapeutic and regimen options might enable that patient to do, what the pros and cons are, what the knowns and the unknowns are. That kind of complex process that really can only happen between a patient and their doctor, that process of shared decision-making is what should result in medical decisions, such as, is gene therapy right for me? Because there is not... 
I, as, as someone with hemophilia, and as I mentioned in the cold open, I believe you me would love nothing more than if something was just delivered and I just took it and hemophilia just goes away. I'd be the first in line. I'd wake up very early. I'd be like one of those people when the new Nikes come out and they line up at Foot Locker. I'd be there. I'd have a little thing that I could sit on. I'd have a little tent. I'd talk to Rob Bradford about making some sort of contraption so I could spend all day there without even needing to leave for a bathroom break. I would love it. That's not what we have. We have treatment options. And the treatment options are getting more sophisticated. They're also getting more complex. And so they raise some new questions that we didn't previously have to ask about memetics or factory placement. So I suppose if there's one thing that is most top of mind for me on the heels of this November 22nd decision and seeing all of these headlines talking about the cost and talking about cures, I think what it all boils down to for me is that the process of shared decision-making has never been more important. I know that's hyperbolic. Sounds like what we hear every election season. This is the most important election of our <laughs> lifetime. But the fact is that science has continued to develop therapeutics, and now we have a brand new one that we've never had before. But we also have everything we've had previously, which for those of us with hemophilia, and especially those of us without inhibitors, have been pretty good. Mm -hmm. So it's only gotten more complex. Please do what you can to get the information that's available then speak with your doctor, ask questions, make known your goals, make known what you want out of life. Because at the end of the day, all of this is about making patients, making people as healthy as possible so they have agency over their lives and can do with their lives what they would like. That's the goal. That's the goal. With that, Let's now transition into our discussion with Michelle Rice, because Michelle's work with payers and stakeholders, as Amy said earlier, is 100% tied in to this conversation about what do we do now that gene therapy is here. Yes. And, you know, Michelle has been working in the public policy and the payer space for a long, long time. Of course, she started in chapter work. She's, you know, one of our community luminaries that has, like, started as a mom and, like, worked her way up. And I think... I think what she has started at NHF and will now continue to do in a larger rare disease world for because we all know that that three point five million dollar price tag is you were right. It's going to be the headline, but it's not the full story. Mm. And our job as patient advocates is to really share what the full story is, to share the financial story of what it's actually like to live with something like hemophilia B, something like hemophilia A. And Michelle has been at the forefront of that for years and years. And it happens behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And it happens in a collaborative way that I think is so ingenious. So I'm so excited for us to hear what Michelle is doing because she has not left us. And we're going to hear that interview with Michelle right after I make you aware, listeners, that this episode of the Bloodstream podcast is brought to you in part by a new campaign from CSL Bearing called Portraits of Progress. In the 1950s, life expectancy for people living with hemophilia was less than 20 years old. However, over the past 70 years, the treatment landscape has evolved rapidly, giving patients new options and a new lease on life. CSL Baring and acclaimed portrait photographer Rankin have teamed up to chronicle the evolution of hemophilia treatment by sharing portraits of the incredible patients, caregivers, and professionals who are personally affected by the disease. Check out www.portraitsofprogress.com, a virtual photo exhibition, to learn more about the personal struggles and triumphs of the hemophilia community and how the pace of progress in hemophilia treatment has transformed lives. From the days of minimal treatment options to the potential of gene therapy of today, this community has seen it all. 
with more hope than ever for the future. Thank you again to CSL Bearing, and remember to check out portraitsofprogress.com. You can click on the link in the program notes. And now, let's get to the interview with Michelle Rice. All right, joining me now is Michelle Rice. Michelle, hello. It's good to see you again. Welcome to Bloodstream. Hello. Nice to see you too, Patrick. So for listeners who are not familiar with Michelle, I want to give a quick bit of background, and I'm going to use your LinkedIn page, Michelle, as reference, so hopefully it's all (laughs) up-to-date and accurate. But in addition to being someone who has mild hemophilia and is a caregiver to two adult children with severe hemophilia, Michelle's worked within the hemophilia space for a large part of her career. She started as the executive director of Hemophilia of Indiana in the year 2000, a role that she was in until April of 2009, at which point she joined the National Hemophilia Foundation for First, as a director of public policy, she had a few titles while with the NHF, ultimately finishing there in December of 2021 as the chief external affairs officer. She has since been operating as Michelle Rice and Associates LLC. And we were just talking about different insurance presentations she's doing. It sounds like you're still working a lot within the world of insurance and policy, but perhaps it's not so much bleeding disorders focused anymore, or at least not exclusively. That's correct. It's not exclusively bleeding disorders. Of course, that's going to be where my heart lies. And I have done several of the recent presentations were to the bleeding disorder community. But when you think about the bleeding disorder community, too, that involves more than hemophilia. So I I am, you know, working in other areas like sickle cell and thalassemia recently. So I remember hearing, I guess it was in January, maybe February, but I just remember hearing, hey, Michelle's not with NHF anymore. And I thought, oh, okay, okay. And I didn't see anything about it or or hear a thing. And you'd been there for quite a while and prior to there on the chapter level. So it just seemed like it kind of came out of nowhere from my perspective. And I was a little like confused and disoriented. And we actually haven't had a chance to discuss this at all. So we're doing it now on mic. But I'm just curious what happened. Sure. I think a lot of people were surprised, (laughs) probably even myself. I just really, you know, I've been working on healthcare reform for, you know, since it started. And Mm. the last few years have been pretty rapid, pretty busy and trying to kind of keep on top of everything. And as you mentioned, by the time that I left NHF, I was their chief external affairs officer, which meant that I wasn't just getting to work on policy and advocacy anymore. I was working a lot of payer relations. I was overseeing the chapter services department. I was, you know, the main point of contact for our stakeholders. It was just kind of a lot. And Mm. I was really, I've been growing more and more concerned over the past year about what's going to happen in the insurance market. And I really feel like our access to care, not just hemophilia patients, but really anybody with a chronic condition, is really at greater risk in the next couple of years than I think it's ever been. And so I really wanted to Mm. find a way to be able to focus specifically on that and to direct a lot of my time to that. Because, again... I don't think we can just look at it by saying, how can we fix this for hemophilia? We have to say, how can we fix this for rare diseases as a whole so that we're not just pushing costs from one place to another? And and that was kind of my goal. I wasn't even sure exactly how that was going to look. I took off a couple of months at the beginning of the year. And then, uh, you know me, 
by March, I was going crazy. So I was able to jump back in and get started. I'm really struck by what you just said. Why do you think that these next couple of years stand to be as threatening as any time ever for those of us with chronic and and rare conditions? Several reasons, really. But the great thing is there's all these advances in treatment that are out there. Again, not just for us, but across the board. And healthcare costs have just continued to go up and up every year. The great thing about the ACA was it helped us all have access. It addressed the access issue, but it didn't really address Mm. the cost issue. And Mm. part of that is because it's so convoluted and our healthcare system is so bifurcated. So to me, one of the most horrible things that could happen is that An amazing therapy comes about for somebody who doesn't have access to any therapy or a therapy comes out that for a particular individual is a huge advancement that would improve their lives and they just don't have access to it and that it's because of cost. And so for the last several years that I was at NHF, I had started a program in 2014 called the Comprehensive Care Sustainability Collaborative, and Mm -hmm. it was intended to bring together payers and providers to say, okay, keeping the patient in the middle, how can we make sure that the patient is getting what they need, but also in the most cost-effective way? And I really felt like we were making progress with hemophilia. But again, there's like over 250 new drugs coming out in the next year. And a lot of gene therapies that are on the cusp of coming out. And While, you know, you look at those and you go, oh, it's a one-time cost and maybe it saves money over time. If you're a payer and all of a sudden you've got 20 people using that new $3 million drug in one year, you have some real problems. And for me, my biggest concern was, it's funny, years ago, hemophilia patients were mostly covered on Medicaid or Medicare, right? So they were on public Mm -hmm. insurance. Now they're on private insurance, which was great, right? It shows this huge advancement. We're able to work. We're able to be productive members of society. But we've got about 60% of our patient population in hemophilia covered on employer groups. Of those, about 50% or more are on self-insured employer plans. And that's actually a trend on how the whole United States is covered. So, Mm. you know, there are a lot of people who are on self-insured employer plans. Sounds scary to an Anthem or a Blue Cross or somebody like that who's going to have 20 patients who need a gene therapy on their program. But imagine being an employer who even has three or five patients, employees who are going to get a gene therapy. All of a sudden, that's a $15 million hit in one year. Right. So that's big. Yeah. So that was my concern was how can we work with employers? How can we work with payers and providers to say, how do we do this? So to go back to your your leaving NHF for a moment then and making that decision makes sense to me why you would make that decision, the, the need, the urgency, that all makes a lot of sense. But I still imagine it must have been an emotional process given the length of time you had put in there what what can you share about the process of transitioning like that you know you say it it must have been an emotional process it still is an emotional process i remember mm-hmm. when i left the chapter and i can honestly say i was at the chapter for 9 years but i was involved with the chapter from the time my son was born and he's 32 soon to be 33 I remember saying when I left the chapter, it felt like I was cutting off half of my body. You know, it was so hard to walk away. One, because 
you want to make sure that the organization remains successful and that any any progress that you helped achieve continues to go forward. And I think when you get associated with an organization, patients start to like, they think about that and then they automatically think your name. And so I wanted to be respectful of new people that were coming in. So I'd kind of been through it once. I will say that because I am someone who likes to be really busy and because I like the challenge, I didn't want to step away and have people think that I was stepping away because I couldn't do it or I couldn't handle it. Mm. You know, I also didn't want to feel like I was letting people down. And so that was very difficult for me to say, okay, I'm going to need time to start my business to do this. I didn't like give out my phone number to a lot of people. I didn't, not because I didn't, you know, want to, because I can tell you that, you know, getting back into even just the last few presentations that I've done for chapters or patient communities, it's like, I feel like I'm at home. It's Mm. this, this is home. But I needed to have that separation to one, steal myself to that, but also to really focus on how to get myself involved in a way and make the right connections to help me be able to move forward in what I want to do. So how has this year gone in terms of starting your business and and making the connections you need and starting this monumental task of trying to be part of the solution to a huge problem? Ironically, I had already committed myself to participating in a program called the Partnership Forum put on by the Academy of Managed Care Pharmacy in April of this year. And they have thousands of members that are pharmacists, medical directors, pharma, these people that attend their meetings. And this was on high cost therapies. And we were just talking about the whole room was talking about kind of the struggle of how do we make sure we're meeting patients needs? How do we cover this? You know, how is this going to be affordable? All this kind of stuff. And a representative from AMCP came up to me during the break and said, hey, I heard that you've gone out on your own. She said, you know, we know you've had a lot of experience in this area and we're hearing that you're fairly well respected in in this space with the with the payers would you be willing to kind of work with us as we try to revamp these programs and then would you help manage them and so i was like absolutely this is this is the good start and ironically the very First, the the program that I've done with them first, which just happened in in October, it took a lot of planning, is in the inheritable blood disorder space. But I have to say what was really cool about it, and even the payers who participated were saying the same thing, was it was about optimizing the management of bleeding disorders, of inheritable bleeding disorders, and specifically was focused on beta thalassemia, sickle cell, and hemophilia. And the reason for those three, here's three that are coming out relatively soon. Actually, beta thalassemia has already come out with a gene therapy. So when I interviewed the the payers that were going to participate, I said, here's what I'd like to do. This is a little different. We usually do one meeting. I'd like to do two. What I'd like to do is come and let's talk right now about how you think access 
to these new therapies is going to look within your plan. You know, how many people do you think are going to be accessing these therapies? What are the utilization management policies that you're putting in place for this? How are you managing the cost right now? And then I want to have you come back in 12 months when they've been on the market. And I want to be able to say, where were we right? Where did unexpected barriers pop up? What are some suggested solutions to those barriers? Are we willing to work together to try to fix those barriers? So the great thing was I had one of our amazing HTC directors there who was speaking on on behalf of hemophilia, Dr. Mark Redding, who if you haven't heard him speak, he's incredible. I was also lucky enough to get Dr. Fouad El-Rassi from Grady Hospital in Atlanta. They actually have the largest sickle cell comprehensive treatment program in the country. His center treats both the sickle cell patients and the thalassemia patients. Oh, okay. And so we had two great clinicians to kind of lay the groundwork as to kind of here's what the current treatment landscape is. Here's what the pipeline looks like. Here's why we need these new drugs. And here's some of the concerns we have. And then one of the best things I did, which I shouldn't say this to you because this is the kind of stuff you've been doing forever. I contacted a patient in each one of those disease groups and I had them do a video testimony about their healthcare journey. Not necessarily their story, Mm. but their healthcare journey. What was it like to be diagnosed? What was it like to receive care as a child? How about as an adult? Where are the differences? Where are the barriers? If you could say one thing to the insurance company, what would that be? What would you want them to change? And then ask them what they thought about these emerging therapies. And I will tell you that every participant said that that was one of the most powerful parts of the whole meeting was because they truly did not understand fully what the patient Mm. journey is like. It's great to hear you continuing to do the kind of work that I've known you to be enlivened by and have expertise in and the ability to guide and participate meaningfully in in strategic conversations. I just want to share that it's on a personal level, just nice to hear when someone's doing the kind of thing they should be doing, even if it's in a new way or if it's in a way that no longer has that person I like interacting with me as much. You know, when we've had people at Believe who've moved on and because they've gotten a role of a lifetime, you know, a job of a lifetime. And all right, I'm sad to lose you as, you know, a member of this team, but you're flourishing in your journey. So I, I can't hate that. I just want you to hear that and know that. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I should mention to listeners as well, you're currently one of the contributors to the Global Hemophilia Report episode that is live right now at the time that this comes out. Michelle is participating in the Global Hemophilia Report's recent episodes on pain as a patient and a caregiver. So if you want to hear a little more from Michelle from a different hat that she wears and is referred to a bit here, you can check out those episodes on the Global Hemophilia Report. Do you have any particular, going into 2023, Michelle, is there any particular objective you have for a kind of meeting or a group of stakeholders or a specific priority that you want to see raised to the top of the list? Is there anything in particular that you're honing in on as a work focus for next year? Absolutely. Actually, I already have some things in the work with AMCP for next year for their market insights programs, for example. And I think this is a huge topic that, you know, I know you've taken this on before, others have taken this on before, and I don't think it can be discussed enough right now, which is mental health. So I am working on specifically the impact of mental health on rare disease. 
And Mm. so we are doing something specifically that kind of looks at anxiety and depression and how not everyone with mental health issues has a chronic disease, but I believe that the majority of us with a chronic disease do have some mental health issues. And how does that impact adherence? How does that impact Mm. our ability to take care of our chronic disease? And when I'm having these meetings with payers, a lot of the conversation is around, how could we maybe think about a new way to do benefit design? You know, one of the things that we think of is, okay, well, if someone has a chronic disease and you see that they're having difficulty with adherence, but you're also seeing that you are seeing some claims for them for mental health. Look, we know out-of-pocket costs continue to get crazy, just continue to grow, Is there a way we could say, okay, we'll waive your fee to see your therapist. We'll waive your co-pays if we also see a corresponding improvement in your adherence. Hmm. Because a lot of times that's the problem. We have to make a decision, right? Do I pay that $50 copay to go to my therapist every week? Or do I go once every couple of months so that I can afford to pay for my medication? Right. It seems to me that in conversations that I've had with payers and conversations that I've had with employers, this seems to be top of mind to them too. Hmm. We know that maybe our mental health coverage is not really hitting the mark for our members, but what is it that we need to change? What is it that we could do differently? For employers, when you realize that people are coming to work in pain, whether that's emotional pain or physical pain, are they really present at work? Are you running a risk of more accidents occurring at work? Are you, you know, decreasing productivity? It's a topic that a lot of them seem to be interested in. So I'm looking at that. The other thing that I'm looking at doing in conjunction with potentially AMSAP and maybe even some other partners is doing some ad boards with our employer groups and really the large employers who are self-insured and saying, how can we help you identify ways that you can safely cut costs and allow yourself to be able to give your employees access to the care they really need. And so that's another thing. And then there's something that I am collaborating with both AMCP and Impact Education, which is a education company I've worked with for quite a while on doing some best practices development. And really this would be best practices as far as whether it's you know, utilization management policies around a specific therapeutic area, or whether it's, you know, formulary development, whether it's, so it's really working with the managed cares and the other payers to say, let's bring together the, the, the companies that are doing this really, really well, and let's come up with some best practices that we could share with those who may be struggling to try to figure out how to deal with these programs. So you just have a little to do next year. <laughs> yeah, just a few. I mean, those are three excellent priorities. So mm. we've reached our time for today, Michelle, but I would invite you any point next year, if there's particular moments in time where something on the policy news cycle pops or there's some significant advancement that it would be useful for patients and caregivers and patient advocacy leaders who listen to know more about. Let's just stay in communication because, you know, I hadn't thought about what you said, but as you talked through the reasoning, there is reason to be concerned as somebody with a rare chronic condition about what coverage in the coming years will look like if some of these issues aren't addressed. So knowing that you're, maybe for lack of a better way to put it, boots on the ground with those who are trying to address that mega issue, if you have updates, we want to hear them. So anytime you want to come back on. 
I appreciate that. One, one positive thing I do want to share is in my experience in these settings where we're trying to work together with these payers, payers are really committed to trying to do what's right for the patients. So I know it's easy to always think of them as the enemy. I just want to say right. that my experience has been excellent in working with these folks and, and they have a desire to fix things as well. So I will definitely get in touch with you if anything uh, starts shaking. Good, good. Please do. And thanks for coming on, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle Rice, for coming on the Bloodstream Podcast, sharing your expertise, energy, wisdom, and friendship. You shared your friendship with me in that interview. I felt it. I don't know if you all could feel it. I felt it in the moment. So thanks for that, Michelle. <laughs> Amy, what are your, um, what's the top of mind takeaways from that discussion? What'd you learn? Well, I, you know, I'm so glad that we were able to get her on this show because I think there's been some wondering about what she's doing now. We didn't really know for a long time. And it really pleases me to hear that she took a step away. I do know that her role has grown beyond, you know, some of her access work, her public policy work. And so I'm just glad that she's getting back to her roots and that she's continuing to do the work that she's doing. If anyone has ever heard Michelle Rice, if you've been in the in a room with Michelle Rice presenting on insurance issues, insurance is the, like the most mundane thing in the world and to hear Michelle talk about it it became alive for me and mm. it, it just it felt like something that was so critically important to the people that I I served and I cared about mm. and she just she was a mentor to me she was she's she's wonderful and I think her work that she has done with the sustainability collaborative yeah. at NHF is a invisible hidden thing that a lot of patients and community members do not know that's like happening for real. Mm -hmm. And it is so inspiring to me. And I know this sounds ridiculous, but when I went to grad school for nonprofit management, my thesis, I wanted an excuse to kind of get into the healthcare system to kind of like see how it worked. And so my basically my question was, how do we move the needle for something a very rare disease that only affects a small amount of people like hemophilia. You know, mm -hmm. how would we do that? How would we move and change these systems? It's a very reasonable question. And what I came to was basically what she's doing. You have mm. to get all these people in a room and you have to get the right people in the room and you literally have to share the 360 view of what it's like for hemophilia and to put it into numbers so they understand that when you are slapped with a 3.5 million price tag, what is that actually doing down the line from a financial standpoint to the system? And so I just, she's doing the work. It's a slow trickle, I think, to the community. I mean, you know, I don't know, it's not like we see it every day, but it's just now that it's here, it's officially here, it's just gonna be really interesting to see how payers respond to this. And from my money, Michelle Rice is right in the nucleus of it. So I'm so glad we had her on. And I anticipate we'll have her on in 2023 because mm -hmm. there will be more approvals of more gene therapies that will force people around the table to discuss the various implications for everybody in the stakeholder value chain. Yes. And so and Michelle I'm so glad I'm sorry to interrupt you. I'm I just wanted to make a note. I'm so glad to hear she's like moving into other disease states as well because that like, this is how it should be. I really do think hemophilia and the work that NHF has done in bleeding disorders has been a blueprint for other rare genetic diseases to follow suit. 
She also stirred in me a sense of the threat that this time yes. poses to the healthcare system as well. And big time. That's kind of that was an unexpected takeaway I had. Like it's rattled me a little bit. Like it's stayed with me since we've talked because I think she's right. And I'm glad that she, to your point, is in the nucleus because if we really are as threatened by what's happening right now from a systems perspective as she's declaring we are, then we need her and every like-minded expert to be involved in finding the solutions that will prevent the healthcare system from falling apart. 100%. It's a battle on all fronts. It's a battle on regulatory issues. It's a battle on federal and state public policy. It's just this massive cobweb of things that, unfortunately, the burden falls on the patient just trying to live like the, navigate it all navigate, yeah like live a life live live a flipping life so yeah. thank you michelle we will certainly have you back on this is this issue is not going anywhere but for the moment now we will transition to our final segment of the episode and that is the will the will with jessica lauren richmond with a spotlight today on relationships so jessica take us please to the well through the act of relating to one another, individuals create little ships to ride through the sea of time. Imagine being on a ship. Ahoy! Drop the anchor starboard! Aboard relationships, there's the self and the other. The self is you and the other is the people you look at and say, Hey, you! People to witness and be witnessed by. Through challenges and successes people to make plans with and tell your stories to. All that act of talking and connection truly does create a transportation device through time. And before you know it, it's the holiday season again and it's time to consider old Lang Syne and look around to see who's aboard the ship of life with you, whether physically or, you know, on Zoom. Should old relations be forgot and never brought to mind? I don't know. Relationships are important. Often, and especially, the ones that end. Welcome to the well. We are standing by a wishing well. Free Britney was a phenomenon of the COVID-19 era. An adult woman in forced fiscal relationship to her father took center stage alongside women's bodily autonomy being redacted from American legislation. I talk more about the latter of those two on Flow, Straight Talk About Extreme Periods, with monthly episodes the second Thursday of each month. But today, here on The Well, boy oh boy, am I grateful to have a reason to unpack the topics of relating and recentivity. From February 2008 to November 2021, Brittany, bitch, was involuntarily placed under conservatorship. For 13 years, Brittany Spears was deemed unable to manage her own finances. For 13 years, that ended very recently. You know what else was recent? Well, about 50 years ago, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act was enacted. Before that, a bank could refuse to issue a line of credit to an unmarried or married woman. Relationships are not all meant to go on forever. Let's discuss. I am an esoterically minded individual and I understand that we have relationship to that which we will our attention towards. Do you follow? I have been in both enriching and depleting relationships and upon reflection, the ones that impact me the most are the ones I continue to reflect on. 
You dig? Relationships, our ships, transportation devices, they exist between us the more attention we put on them. And in no fleet do all ships stay at sea forever. Yet if a woman wanted financial freedom 55 years ago, she may be obliged to be married and have her husband co-sign on her financial decisions. Can you imagine how many capable independent women willfully stayed in relationships because of that restriction? Can you imagine how many unwillfully or involuntarily stayed in such fiscal restriction? In 2008, Britney Spears was placed under conservatorship because she was deemed unwell. Well, here at The Well, we know sanity is a group sport. On Flow, straight talk about extreme periods, I spent season one reminding menstruators that were being dismissed for their pain that they are not crazy. But because so much of the world is totally nuts, here at The Well, we'll carry on practicing ways to maintain a pleasant relationship to our own mental state so that we can continue to rally around the fact that Brittany's relationship to her father should end, just like some relationships are meant to. And once we free her, well, there's a population of two million other imprisoned in America and they don't have Instagram accounts, so they are really missing the team sport action. In order to play in the group sport of sanity, may you and yours, whoever you are in relationship to right now, be well this holiday season. We'll see you to talk about resolutions in, well, the new year. Thank you, Jessica, for another wonderful trip to the well. And thanks again to Michelle Rice and to James Maple for contributing to today's episode. Thanks as well to Bloodstream Podcast's presenting sponsor, Takeda. Thanks, Takeda. And to all who have helped make this episode possible. We've got quite a team, actually, from Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media today in the booth and behind the scenes making this episode possible. So thank you to everybody who's involved. Amy Board, we've got one episode left in 2022. It comes out in two weeks on December 23rd, Christmas Eve Eve. Which is a great day for a podcast. And what can listeners expect to hear on that podcast? Oh, man, big finish to 2022. We've got NHF CEO Dr. Lynn Valentino, always always a rock star, always a rad interview. <laughs> and he's going to provide us some year-ahead thoughts on leadership, also year-behind stuff about what were some of his highlights of the year and some challenges going into 2023. So, as always, a phenomenal interview. We're excited about that. And then... We're going to be doing... Um, and more. And more. <laughs> we like never end on the Bloodstream podcast. Patrick and I, for the first time ever, mm -hmm. is that right? That is correct. This is the first time. Y'all, some of y'all that have listened to us are going to be psyched when you hear what we're going to do. And some of y'all are going to be like, you guys are idiots. We're going to be at ASH for the first time ever. The American Society of Hematology's annual meeting. So like basically all of the hematologists that are hematologists, it's their very fancy meeting. And Patrick and I get to go for the first time. And we're going to be recording live from ASH. Yes, we are. And with all due respect to the places that conferences and meetings are often held at, this one is in New Orleans. New Orleans, crawfish, baby. Give me a short list of where to go. New Orleans is on that list. So thank you to the Ash Meeting organizers for not bringing us to Orlando oh, again. Oh, we're psyched that it's not in Orlando. And with that, that is all for this episode. As always, a reminder to subscribe, listen to, and share episodes of the Bloodstream Podcast with friends, family, colleagues, neighbors, co-signers, accountants, dental hygienists, <laughs> and those working for local municipalities. Wait, what? Why not? 
I guess. Let's do it. Touche. And Let's don't do forget James's announcement. If you or a loved one in the Bleeding Disorders community is a musician and you'd like to share your songs and story for a new segment on the pod, email mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. You can also use uh, mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com to inquire about storytelling and casting opportunities for Bloodstream's podcasts and Believe Limited's films. Are we, we casting are something? Always casting. Oh. 100% all the time, 24-7. You can also connect with Bloodstream Media and me. You? And my pal, Patrick James Lynch, oh. on the socials. Yeah, we're there. You can find us. And I am your host, Patrick James Lynch. And I'm your other host and human with a cold, Amy Bohr. You did so uh. well, cold notwithstanding. And until next time, listeners, take self-care of yourself. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.